pastor, he's also in our services. I don't know what you are. He's man of everything, work, drum player, youth leader. It's like wherever wherever Calvin is, though, there's something good happening. So we just we just bless you this morning, Calvin. Thank you for ministering to us. We hand over to you. Awesome. Amen. Thank you. Give a hand to Pastor Sammy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's good to see your faces, some, half of your faces. Um, I'm excited to be here. We are in week 10, I think it is. Uh, week 9, week 10, somewhere along the way, but we're there. Uh, we're in week 10 of our Exodus series. And last week, if you were here, you would have realized that Pastor Carol spent some time just explaining some of the commandments. If you watch the online version, you got the full the whole thing, uh, but she broke it down a little bit last week, uh, just some of the commandments. So this is sort of where we find ourselves, uh, like imagine a movie, a really long movie, right? I don't like long movies, but imagine you are sitting in a movie, maybe it's three and a half hours long, and it gets to like 90 minutes, and it's kind of like, the excitement of everything that started in the beginning has sort of died down. You're expecting something to finish big, but it just hasn't happened yet. So you're like there in that middle section. Maybe if you're at home, this is the time where you go and get something to eat. Or if you're like me, this is the time where you fall asleep. <laughs> and um, it's like just there. So this is sort of where we find ourselves in the story today. Okay, so... This been a roller coaster ride of just rescue from Egypt, plagues, people dying, r rivers ri opening, seas opening, people drowning. The first worship song is sung, a whole lot of things happening smoke, fire, commandments, and then we're here. <laughs> where God decides, now I'm going to tell you some more stuff going to give you some more rules, going to give you some more instructions. So this is where you find ourselves. So um, you heard about the Ten Commandments. We know the Ten Commandments. Some scholars, some, some books call them the Ten Words, just like Ten Words. And then the rest of the stuff that comes in the next two or three chapters, it's called the Book of the Covenant. It says that in Exodus 24. It's called the Book of the Covenant. Book of the Covenant is sort of like instructions. So your practical application you know, a lot of people say knowledge is power, but I believe knowledge is potential power. Because you can know everything, but if you don't apply it, so you can know the Bible, but if you're not applying it, you're not going to really grow in your life. So this is what God was saying. He says, this is how you practically apply these Ten Commandments to your daily life. So, and whether or not you find this part of Exodus remarkably entertaining, the fact that it's in the Bible means we need to pay attention, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's paint the picture a little bit more. Um, so the Book of the Covenant, like I said, was a, a set of rules or regulations that God gave to the Israelites after He had given the Ten Commandments. And so just to give you an understanding of what was happening right now, the Israelites had been freed already. God had rescued them and He had brought them out through this whole wilderness period. They're still in the wilderness. They're not quite where they've been promised that they're going, but they're on their way. And a lot of stuff happens on the way. So we are in this place where God is saying, this is how I want you to live. 
this is how I would like you to live. You are my chosen people. And if you're taking notes this morning, my message is entitled Living Chosen, How Covenant People Live. So the Israelites were the first nation to actually have a covenant with the Almighty God. The very first nation. So they, 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 like most nations, there's rules and regulations. You know, do not murder, do not steal, you know, the common crimes, all of these things. But the, the book of the covenant was the first time that an actual nation had entered into a covenant with God. That's what made it, made it so important. And so what God was doing now is he was saying, here's how I want you to live in your daily life. So it was almost like, you know, when uh, these rules were sort of like, not just for when they were standing in awe and worshiping, standing at the bottom of the mountain, standing in awe of God's, gra- God's goodness, or it's not just for a Sunday when we are in God's presence. This was for when you borrow some tools to your neighbor and they don't return them. Or, you know, back in the day when we had DVDs and you gave a DVD to someone and it never came back. You know, or your spouse tells you they're going to wash the dishes and they don't, you know, or the kids are arguing about something. This is what these rules were for. Daily, normal life. And an illustration to to sort of represent that it's almost like, imagine you're chilling at home, you're sitting at home with your family, maybe you're playing some board games or you're watching TV or something, you're just having fun, but you've left the back door open. In walks a lion. Right? Now, here's the thing. It's still your home. Circumstances are familiar. Environment is familiar. The people that you live with are familiar. But there's a lion. So that means the way you operate, the way you speak, the way you do things changes because of the authority and the presence of this lion. Right? So you might not be as rowdy as you used to be. You might not be as wild as you used to be because of the presence and the authority of the line. So this is what God was doing. He was saying, I want to live in your midst as my chosen people. And because I'm living here in your midst, there's a certain way that my chosen people live. Now, what he wasn't saying, he wasn't saying, follow these rules and you'll be free. They were free. They were free. He freed them. But what he was saying is like, a friend of mine used this example when I was talking to him this week. He said, imagine you adopt a child into your family. But there's, a certain, there's certain rules and regulations of your household. So I've got two kids. I adopt a third. There's a certain way that Gopals live in our house. But I'm not saying, these are the rules. If you, only if you follow these rules, then you can be my son. I'm saying, no, you are my son. Yeah. But there's a certain way that we live. That's the same example. We are his chosen people. He has chosen us. He has adopted us. We are in his family. But because we live in his midst, or he lives within us, there's a certain way that we need to operate. So this is what God was doing with the book of the covenant. That's what makes it so exciting. So we're going to sort of jump into the text. But before I get to that, I want to say that one of the differences with the book of the covenant that was different to a lot of other nations at the time is there were special legal principles for the protection of women. Yeah. We'll get to that. But I just thought I'd mention that quickly. 
All right, cool. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump into the text. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we are here in your presence. Thank you that you have chosen us to be your people. So I pray even as I speak today, I pray that you'd open our, our hearts to, 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 to understand what you're saying, open our ears and our eyes to hear and see what you're saying this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So we're going to jump into the text, Exodus 21, uh, verse 1 to 11. And I'm using the NIV version because it's necessary in victory. So here we go. Youth pastor jokes. Okay, cool. All right, so this is what it says. It starts with, these are the regulations that you must present to Israel. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve for no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. If he was single when he became your slave, he shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must be freed with him. His master gave him if his master gave him a wife, so if he got married whilst he was in slavery, he and they had sons and daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year. But his wife and children will still belong to his master. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children, hopefully. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. We're going to carry on. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. I'll explain what that is in a second. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not be freed at the end of the six years as the men are. Remember that point. If she does not satisfy her owner, he must allow her to be bought back again. But... He is not allowed to sell her to foreigners since he is the one who broke the contract with her. But if the slave's owner arranges for her to marry his son, he may no longer treat her as a slave, but as a daughter. If a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and intimacy. If he falls in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. That's what God said, guys. Okay, right. So what is going on exactly? So first of all, first of all, first of all, God began the book of the covenant by regulating relationship between masters and slaves. Now I know what you're thinking. Because I thought that. Okay? And this is a sort of part of the, the text that a lot of preachers don't like preaching on. So when Pastor Carol said, hey, yeah, do this. I was like, okay. Let's read. And I started reading and I was like, okay. Here we go. All right, so good thing God's on my side. All right, so, so he is for me, exactly. So this is what we think about. So you think slavery, and, we th and I thought, why didn't God just abolish slavery right then and then? All those years ago, before we go anywhere else, why didn't he just say, no more slavery? There's no such thing as slavery. It will not happen, right? You're probably asking that question. Why would God endorse such a thing? Now, here's the thing. I don't know, but we'll find out. Okay, so the reason why we're shocked is because we tend to think of slavery with our modern minds. We think about, when you think slavery, you think, ah, slave trade, Africa, Asia, all of these people put on a ship, taken around the world, and forced into labor. That's what we think, right? That's the first thought that comes to mind, slavery. But what we forget is that it wasn't 2020, it wasn't the 1900s, 
It was way before that. And obviously, God loves his people. So surely he would put ways in which this would happen in a dignified manner. And this is how I'm going to explain. He ex God allowed for certain forms of slavery with safeguards to protect the welfare and dignity of those who served. Now, without ever defending slavery, this is what I mean. Right? It's hard for us to understand because, like I said, we think of it in different ways. But as I was taught when I did 215, <laughs> context, context, context. All right? So do 215. It gives you the context of things like this. All right? So what we need to understand is we need to appreciate the vastly different social and economic status at the time. So this is the context. Slavery allowed under Jewish law was very, very different. In fact, it was a provision to save people. Yeah, that's right. How? I see you asking. <laughs> so let me explain it. So let's say I had a business, made some poor financial decisions, was really reckless with my money, and became bankrupt. I had debts to pay. I was struggling. I had a family to feed. There's no UIF, there's no employment benefits, there's no under the table, maybe there was, but I don't get any grants or anything. It would be a very, very, put myself in a very, very difficult place. So what I could do back then is I could opt to voluntarily sell myself into slavery so that I could feed my family and pay my debts. Okay, but as we read, six years. In the seventh year, my master could let me go free. In that six years, he is training me and teaching me how to live and how to work better in the comfort of a household, how a household works, how business works, how I can be better with my money. So that when I am released after seven years, I'm a better person than I was before. I understand how business works. So this was sort of like, one of the first few discipleship moments. Your master was discipling the slave and saying, hey, this is how you do it. This is how, exactly, internship. This is how I've been successful. All right? So don't think of slavery as being forced. It was voluntary. Think of it, as Adam said, as internship, paid internship, or apprenticeship, where as an apprentice, you are learning something because you are going to become that that you've been taught. So now, let's read Deuteronomy 15, verse 12 to 15. I'm going somewhere with this. It says this, uh, If a fellow Hebrew servant sells himself, or a fellow Hebrew slave sells himself or herself to be your servant and serves you for six years, in the seventh year you must set that servant free. When you release a male servant, do not send him away empty-handed. Give him a generous, generous farewell gift from your flock, your threshing floor, your wine press. Share with him some of the bounty with which the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were once slaves in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. This is why I'm giving you this command. So God was saying, do what I have done. I brought you out but I didn't leave you empty-handed. Give 
of your bounty. Give a generous. Now, when you look at the definition of generous, it is more than you can think of. It's give generous. When you say give generously, it's give abundantly. So don't give of, well, just give him this much. Give generously. That's what God is saying. So masters had a responsibility to set their former slaves up in business. So this proves that the biblical form of slavery had a constructive and redemptive purpose. Men and women who were slaves had an opportunity to be better members of society within that community. Okay, so debtors became... By selling themselves into slavery, those people that were, debt, that were in debt, they became members of stable households. They learned how things worked so that they could be better members of the community. Yeah. But, so as I said, it was a dental purpose. The goal was not bondage, but responsible independence. Yeah. So the Hebrew slave was bound for freedom. Yeah, that's right. But, this is where it got complicated. If there was a woman involved, a wife, Things are complicated. <laughs> now, I'm not saying, <laughs> forgive me, my, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, if you came in single, you lived single, there's no issue. If you came in with your wife and kids, you lived with your wife and kids, which is fine. But if you came in single, and you met someone there, and you got married, and had kids, you went and your kids stayed behind. Now, you might think, here's another question. Why, if God is so big on family, why would God allow the man to go free, yet his wife and kids stay in bondage? Remember what I said about legal precedence for the protection of women. So here's the thing. That man, that slave, is a former debtor. So if he hasn't learned his lesson during that six years of servitude, very soon he'll be back in debt and have messed up his life again. But this time, his wife and kids will have the same consequences. So this was designed to protect them. So he had to prove to his master, I am able to support my family in a God-honoring way. Then they were released and they were able to live under his roof as a family. So that precedent was put in place to protect the women. And as we read about if it's a single woman and she's enslaved and she's to set free. She's not to be set free unless she's going back to her family. Because as a single woman back then, if you didn't have anybody to support you, you were at risk of being abused and in trouble. So it was again a way of God saying, I want to protect the women. Because this is the thing. I know that there's a lot of critics out there that say that the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, has a negative attitude about women, Right? So I also sometimes used to cringe when people ask those questions and now you're like, I'm trying to defend God. But when I read it, I'm like, oh, well, God, what were you doing there? <laughs> okay, so again, <laughs> context about it is this. This is the truth. God has always loved his daughters. Yeah. Bottom line, he has always loved his daughters. And as as, 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 even though it's difficult to understand, if the biblical teaching about men and women challenges our preconceptions, then it's because we're looking at it from our own distorted worldviews. Because God loves his daughters, right? And, and this is true for everyone in every culture. 
Gender relationships always need to be transformed by the life-changing power of God's word. So, we should expect that some of our attitudes about what it means to be male and female need to be changed. But we should never doubt the goodness of God. The fact that God loves his daughters just as much as his sons. And even if you read the Bible and sometimes you don't get it, there are a lot of precepts is that God loved his daughters and he wanted them to flourish. And in practical terms, the law for female servants sets up the agenda for Christian marriage. Now I'm going to explain that. So what does a wife need? She needs to eat, right? So it's a husband's responsibility to provide. She needs shelter, so she ought to find protection in his care. She also needs intimacy at every level. This is what God was saying. And these are also areas that women um, contribute to a marriage as an equal partner, correct? But her husband has the responsibility before God to make sure that she gets what she needs. A husband who fails to care for his wife in any of these areas, provision, protection, or the physical expression of love, violated the law of God. And the women said, Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I want to jump quickly to chapter 22. I'm going to come back and speak about this seven years thing. But I want to jump back to chapter 22 or ahead to 22. Um, towards the end, we learn about God's sort of character and his compassion. Where he speaks about, uh, it's in chapter 22, verse 21 to 24. He says, you must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. You must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way and they cry out to me, then I will certainly hear your cry. Hear their cry. My anger will blaze against you and I will kill you, this is God, with the sword. So I asked God, what were you thinking? Anyway, then your wives will be widows and your children will be fatherless. So obviously that means God was very passionate about this if he says, I will kill you. So these laws were in place to deal with the weakest members of society. And one thing that I am very big on is social justice and social responsibility. And if you think about the whole seven years thing, imagine if you ran your business like that. You had people under you, and your goal was to empower them to a point that they can run business better than you. Their own businesses. Imagine what life would be like. People setting people up in business and just everything moving. And that was what God wanted of his chosen people. And the same with these laws of protecting orphans, protecting widows, protecting foreigners. Because what God was doing here is he was appealing to their own lived experience. They were slaves. So he's saying, why would you want to treat foreigners how you were treated? And I do believe that lived experience trumps empathy any day. If I can come to you and feel exactly what you felt, and go through and, and exactly what you've gone through because of my lived experience, I'm sure the world will be a better place because we understand how things are. And we as a church also have a responsibility. We have Zanspread down here, which we, it's a community that we serve. And I'll tell you a quick story. A couple of years ago, or many years ago, uh, I was still in Cape Town and we were planning a, an urban mission. So one of the areas in, in the city, underprivileged areas, and we're planning what we're going to do, what we're going to buy, what we're going to take. And we're talking about groceries. And one of the guys said, listen, 
if you are going to have bacon and eggs for breakfast, why do we not see bacon and eggs on the list of things that we're buying for these people? I was like, wow. Makes so much sense. If it's good enough for me, why is it not good enough for them? That's what social responsibility is about. And social justice is about what is good for me? Am I able to see that in other people? God has given us that responsibility as well. God wanted his people to take good care of everybody within the community and not shun them because they've already been shunned. Because remember, as a widow, she doesn't have a husband. There's no one to support her. So why shun them even more if they've already been pushed away? So even though we're not bound to follow the Old Testament slave laws today, they teach us some practical things. And I'm going to break this down in the next five minutes. They give us practical principles to apply at home, at work, in general life. They also provide wonderful pictures of our salvation in Christ. Because remember, we were slaves to sin. We were under the cruel mastery of the enemy, making us do things. And just the way a master, in, in the book of the covenant, a master was supposed to deal with his slave and be in relationship with slave, it shows the picture of the gospel story. Right? When Christ was crucified, he paid the price to redeem us. I'm getting to a point here, and now we're free to go back home to God. So we were enslaved, and we've been set free. So we were alone without hope, but when we came to God, he engaged us to marry his one and only son. This is why we're called the bride of Christ. And these are two examples of how the law of Moses points us to the salvation of Christ. So this is what God was showing us, was showing back then. The, but the most beautiful picture of the gospel comes from the law's special provision for a slave who wanted to enter his master's permanent service. So let's paint the picture again. So after the sixth year, in the seventh year, you had the opportunity to go free. Here, I'm letting you free. Thank you for your service. This is what you need to do. But the slave had the option to say, you know what? I love my master. I love you. And if they had wife and kids, I love my wife and kids. I don't want to go free. I want to stay here. So what, did, what the slave needed to do back then is they needed to go before the elders of the community and say, this is my intention. Because I love my master, because he's treated me well, he's treated me as a friend, he hasn't looked down upon me, he's given me everything that I needed whilst I've been in service, I want to stay in service and live in his household for the rest of my life. This is what the slave was saying. So it was a public declaration. Some of the, 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 the translations say, this, the Bible literally says the slave must be taken before God, meaning in that case, to the spiritual leaders of the covenant community. Today, we would say that the slave made his declaration before God and these witnesses. What picture does that give you? Baptism. Public baptisms are amazing because it's in front of so many witnesses. Pre-COVID. So many witnesses. Because <laughs> you're saying, this is my public declaration of my faith and my love for God that I'm doing this in front of everyone to show that I love him, and I'm making this declaration. 
So after that declaration was made, there had to be that, there was no doubt in the servant's mind that this is what he wanted to do. So what the master would do is he would take him to the doorpost of his household and he would grab an awl. An awl is like a screwdriver with a very sharp point. And he would take it and he would nail his ear against the doorpost. Okay. Yes. <laughs> That's what would happen. So, but this was symbolic in a couple of ways. All right. So the ear was the most important part of the servant's body. Why? Remember when you were a kid and you weren't listening to your grandmother and they pulled your ears? Because in order to obey, you need to listen. So that's why the ear, because I'm listening and I'm obeying. So it was symbolic, right? Um, also, so that was him making a public commitment to obey what his master said. The second part, the doorpost was also symbolic. Not only did it serve as a place for driving the oil, but it also showed that the servant was now attached to the master's household. Yes. Didn't stay there forever. He didn't get attached there forever, but <laughs> it was just symbolism. The doorpost was also marked with the blood of a covenant between the master and the slave. Covenant comes into play again. Right? So anyone, so what happened is the master would then put an earring in the slave, and anyone who saw the servant's earring would know that he had chosen to serve. It's almost like my wedding ring. People know I've made a public commitment to my wife, and that's why I wear it. Not because I'm scared, but because I wear it. <laughs> okay? But the, the, you, uh, the question comes, why would anyone make this choice? Not, not the choice to get married. The choice to stay in their master's house when they have an opportunity to go free. Why would someone make that choice? What could persuade a man to renounce his freedom and stay in slavery? The answer, love. The slave who had his ear pierced was saying, I love my master, and his servitude was a voluntary act of love. But this raises the next question. What kind of master would deserve so much love? The master who deserved to be loved was a good master. He took care of his servant's need, treated them as a, as a, as a friend, not as a slave. He was generous. He had his servant's best interests at heart, at heart. In a word, he was a loving master. So it was only natural for the slave to love him in return. So rather than looking for freedom somewhere else, the slave chose to remain in the master's house. And this must teach us about our relationship to God. We are loved by the greatest master of all. He takes care of us. He treats us like friends. He has our best interests at heart. What has God done for you? What has God done for you? How often do we think of that? How often do we think, what has God done for me today? I know God woke me up this morning. Something as simple as that. And he takes care of us. We serve a master who has made himself our slave, taking on the very nature of a servant. Right. Mark 10, 45 says this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus always chose his Father's will. Out of his great love for his Father and for us as his bride, 
he chose to die on the cross. Which means suffering for us because he loved us. And that was the greatest service that he could have ever done, was to die on the cross for us. And he didn't have to, but if a servant loves a master who takes care of him and treats him like a friend, imagine what a servant would do for a master who saved him and at the cost of his own life. So this morning, we are loved by such a master. Why would we want to choose anything else? God is looking for people, His chosen people, who He has chosen to worship Him freely, to love Him voluntarily. Not because we don't have the freedom to choose something else, but because we want to choose Him. God wants you to choose Him. I'm going to tell a story as I close and the worship team can get ready to come up. So, if I... Some of you may have heard the story before. I do apologize if you have. But there was this slave, and his name was Peter. And um, Peter was, as all slaves would be, he was working really hard. But his slave master wasn't one of the loving kind. He would grind him and grind him and make him work hard. In the sun, and, uh, and the thing is, Peter would look up and he would see that the palace was just not far away. And he would often think, I wonder what it would be like to be a slave in the palace. And one day as he was working, he saw the king's son, the prince, walking towards him, walking towards where they were working. And he walked up to the slave master and he said, how much for Peter? And Peter was like, okay, first of all, how does this guy know my name? Second of all, why would he pay for me? So when he heard what the slave master said, the amount, he was like, ah, it's not going to pay. And the king's son took out a bag of money and gave it to the slave master and said, Peter, come with me. And as they walked, Peter said, now what? He said, no, you're free. He says, free to do what? He says, just free, free, come with me, let's go. Took him to the back to the palace, walked into the king's court, and the prince said, look, dad, I brought a friend this time. So Peter was thinking, friend, I'm a friend? How can this be? And the king said, let's have a feast. They took him for a shower. They put on the best clothes. They had the best food to eat. They had a banquet. He ate until he couldn't eat anymore. He was showed to his room. Nice warm bed and he slept. In the morning, there was a knock on the door. One of the other servants came and said, Lord Peter, the king would like to see you now. And he thought, oh, well, I guess it's over now. <laughs> this must be something that they do just for fun. Feed me and then they throw me out or I become a slave. Well, at least I'm a slave in the king's palace. That's fine. So as he walked into the king's court, the king said, Peter, you are now my son. You can have everything that is in this household, but I want to give you something to go and buy whatever you want. So he gave him a big bag of money, and Peter's eyes, he had never seen so much money before. Gave him this bag of money, and he went, and he thought, what could I buy to say thank you to this king? And as he walked through the marketplace, he saw it. And he was like, yes, this has to be it. So he bought it, and he walked back. And he was so excited, he walked up the stairs, got into the king's court, and the king turned around, and he looked at him, and he said, look, Dad, I brought a friend this time. <laughs> and that is what living in the kingdom is about. This, is what this, this shows how we should follow Christ. It's because we have been freed. We need to bring other people in. 
And we have that choice. Free to say, look dad, I brought a friend this time. So I want to pray this morning and we can, we can pray. And maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I know I'm free. I know that God loves me. But maybe I'm not really living as if the lion is present in my house. So I want to pray for people like that this morning. And the worship team is going to do a couple of songs after that. But if that's you, I want you just to to look to God. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for everybody that is here. And I thank you that you have freed us and thank you that you give us. You give us the freedom to choose you. And I pray for everyone here. I pray that those who feel like they're not voluntarily choosing you because of whatever circumstances, they're not living, understanding the presence and the authority that you have in their lives. So I pray that even this morning they would begin to understand the freedom and the love that is within you and that being under you and being in your household is not bondage, but it's freedom. But not because they don't have a freedom to choose something else, but because of the love that you have for us and the grace and the mercy that you have showed for us. Thank you that you delivered us from sin and death when your son died on the cross for us. And thank you that we are now free. And that is how covenant people live, in freedom. Because we are chosen by you. Thank you, Jesus.